and welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian. Danny out there? I am, Brian. Excellent. Happy ma'am. Yes. We are here in the fifth installment of our Movies About Making Movies theme month. And normally this is all you would get, listeners. But if you've been following along, you know that we have come to the executive decision to break down the walls and expand out into the ether and have what we're right now calling nine episodes. I think that should satisfy our ambitions. But as I'm sure we've found, Dan, there's just a ton of movies about making movies. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it kind of makes sense. It's like you make what you know, you know, and even if you're not actively trying to make what you know it's going to seep in there right you're making a movie regardless yeah and so the two films that i have brought because we can't just have it be one per episode it's just too chock full when it comes to this topic i have got a film from federico fellini the italian director called eight and a half released in the year 1963 now that was his eight and change film that he had made and that's the source of the title and you know i guess debatable if it's a full movie because it's all kind of nebulous and about its own creation so i guess it doesn't get a whole one but then we are also going to be talking about tim burton's very first film that he directed Wee's big adventure from 1985 so that one is timely because, of course, Paul Rubens passed recently. If you R.I.P. Yeah, if you've listened to the podcast for a long time, you know that I was kind of steeped in Pee Wee Media early on, particularly Pee Wee's Playhouse, the TV show that ran from 1986 to 1991. This movie actually came first. So did he have like an HBO special or show or something that pioneered the character before the movie that's right so he had something called the Wee herman show on hbo which very much has the same format and a lot of the same characters as Wee's playhouse later on but the themes were more overtly adult and then gotcha more yeah HBO. and then got toned down for the the tv show but in between well, so that was like early 80s. He had that special on HBO. He developed the character as part of the L.A. improv troupe, The Groundlings, which he was a member of, along with other members of his cohort, including Phil Hartman and Elvira. So the three of them go back. And, you know, when he passed, there were social media posts from from people in his crew like Elvira, not Phil Hartman. Of course, Phil Hartman 
had his own even more tragic death. Right. I feel like the comedy universe is small. It's like once you kind of pierce it, everybody knows each other, you know, and typically they like each other, although there's always like feuds. Uh, We've talked a little bit in the past about how comedians are not always the happiest and most well-balanced people. So not too surprising, but it really feels like, I don't know, like he tried out for SNL. So he's like one layer separated from like Chevy Chase and, you know, people of that ilk, even though he kind of feels like a totally separate universe. Right. And of course, Phil Hartman did go on to be an SNL. Right. Yeah. I read a book, like a coffee table book about the history of comedians, specifically American comedians. So I didn't go back super far, but it talked about a party in like 1975 that the like the initial inaugural cast of SNL was at in New York and then Monty Python walks in so they like you know they showed up for the party too i guess they were in the state wow and like the sheer number of legendary people under that roof at that point exactly it's like cast of like i don't know 200 of the greatest comedies ever made we're starring people under that roof, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like at that point, you got to have a designated survivor in a bunker somewhere in case anything happens. But yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit before we dive in about our past connection to these films. Maybe you got more connection to one than the other. I certainly do. Uh, this was my first time watching a Fellini film. I actually saw it earlier in this past semester for the film history class that I took. But I saw some connections, you know, really, if we get down to it, this episode is motivated by wanting to talk about Pee Wee, but I can't just always be picking movies from my top 100. So I want to also not have it always be that it's Dan who picks the 1001 films you must see before you die type stuff. And me always Thomas and the Magic Railroad. Yeah, if you hadn't picked this one, I probably would have picked it before the month is done because it's like among the canonical movies about making movies, you know, it's very explicitly the theme about making movies. And it's like one of the capital G great films. Um, yeah, wasn't it in the top 10 sight and sound? Um, I think in the director's poll, it was top 10. It sunk down a little bit in the critics one. It was like number 40 or something or 35. Um, it might not have even been the highest Fellini anymore. Um, so I've, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Fellini. Should I, should I hop in here with my Fellini thoughts? Yeah, let's do it now. So Federico Fellini, um, he's become a director. I really love, I've seen five of his films now, all of them in the past three years. So I'm pretty fresh on him. This was my first time seeing eight and a half. So one thing that I kind of have been doing, which may or may not be good being a cinephile. I don't know. It's like, it's kind of like the Godfather problem. It's like, I saw the Godfather when I was like 17 and I've seen the Godfather like 12 times. And so when I watch the Godfather, like I'm not surprised by it or like I enjoy it and I admire it, but just like, I don't really get swept away by it anymore. It's just, it's too familiar. And I mean, I still think it's a a masterpiece. I still had it in my top 100 favorite films, but like the experience of watching the Godfather, it's like, 
I've consumed that movie. I've I've expired that movie unless I like set it aside for twenty years or something. Maybe I'll do that. Like so that's what I'm trying to do with some of the films that like I really like. Like La La Land, I watched a few times when I wrote my review, but now I'm trying to set it aside for like several years so I don't find myself not emotionally responding to it anymore. So all this is prelude to say that like I'm kind of spacing out films that are like masterpieces or regarded as masterpieces that I like really want to see and I'm excited to see. So I actually sometimes gravitate towards the films that are like not the most acclaimed of the directors just because I'm trying to like save the good ones because then you're only going to ever see them once. And even if you see it once and you love it, then it might be not quite so good when you see it in the future. So I, I try to try to space them out. Point being for Fellini, I, I've seen five of his films, but I haven't seen prior to this past week, eight and a half or and I still haven't seen La Dolce Vita, which is his other uh, one that you see kind of up in the same tier, top 30 or 40. 50 or whatever greatest films. And then you often see La Strada up there. And I have seen La Strada. What are some of the others that you've seen? Yeah. So I, I saw a double feature of uh, the white Sheik and Knights of Kiberia. And I did have Knights of Kiberia on my top 100 that I made at the end of last year, um, which I think is terrific. This eight and a half is the only one by him that I have that I've seen that does not have um, the actress who plays Kabiria. And I'm going to look up her name now. He he was married to her. Yeah. So this was Fellini's wife named Julieta Massina. And she's got kind of like a Charlie Chaplin round clown face. And she's like an amazing actress and has like the most cinematic face you've ever seen. But I think Fellini's really interesting. So we talked about, well, we kind of mentioned in passing, or we might have not even said the name, but alluded to it in the episode where we talked about uh, the Sturges movie, what's that called? Sullivan's Travels. Yeah, Sullivan's Travels. Kind of in Europe in the 40s, neorealism. So this was like making movies that were more cinema verite, more real life, all about like real issues and real people and stuff. And Fellini was kind of like the, he kind of came up in it, but then he kind of backlashed against it. And he made movies that were a lot more surreal and a lot more like thematically ambiguous and like didn't always end in a resolute way. And also we're like very introspective and I just find his movies really fascinating. I think they're pretty good overall. I mean, I think they're great overall. He has a lot of, he's kind of mean in some of his movies and his men are like almost always assholes. The, the male leads are like without fail jerks. Um, or at least that I would define it to the point that like, I'm just confident that Fellini was an asshole. Like if all these characters that he's writing that are in some ways reflective of himself are assholes, then that's got to say something about his worldview. But he just, he has absolutely beautiful camera work. And I think eight and a half, well, we'll talk about it, but he kind of brings it to a new level there. He's just a really interesting guy. He also makes stories that are really episodic and it's just like a thing happens and a thing happens and a thing happens for a while. And then the movie ends and we can maybe debrief on if we felt that eight and a half was that way too. But it, this was definitely like his artiest and most avant-garde of the ones that I've seen. Like most of his other ones are a little more grounded in like our world. Well, I'm glad that you read up on this because I meant to look up what Fellini's whole deal was and I didn't really get around to it. So yeah, glad that you have kind of a background in it and have watched some of the other films. 
I didn't know what genre to put down in our movie grid for what eight and a half is. I settled for experimental. I don't know if surreal is a genre because it definitely has more of a form than a typical experimental film that I, if there is even such a thing as typical experimental, but it is kind of all over the place and surreality and dreams are always like busting up the established reality. A couple more thoughts on that. So I have come to the conclusion, especially with eight and a half that David Lynch must absolutely love Fellini because I see so much of David Lynch in Fellini's work. I mean, particularly eight and a half. I might make you wait, watch a David Lynch movie before this month is done, Brian. And I think you will definitely see some of this if we do uh, some of eight and a half in there. You're probably right. And I would say that watching this movie, it felt like a missing piece in my film going experience because I was like, oh, this is what made so and so do that. In my case, it was Tim Burton. I was thinking I kept seeing Tim Burton must love this movie. Interesting. I want to hear your thoughts on that because I didn't necessarily that didn't hop out at me. OK, much, so no, that's that's fair. It was more so the first time I watched it than this time. And I was watching it and this time and thinking, I don't know if Dan's going to see the connection like I do. It's a little less vivid than it was before. But, you know, you got away with Party Down the other week, so I didn't feel too bad. Yeah. One more Fellini anecdote. One of my favorite stories about movies, just like the movie making world in general. So like I talked a little bit about neorealism and how like it was a big thing for filmmakers to like their political identity was a big part of the art they were making. And I mean, that's been in film history. You always you often see that, especially in Europe. And if you ever look up, I think it was 1954's Venice Film Festival. There were basically like two great filmmakers bringing in films. And that was the year that uh, Fellini made La Strada, which was his kind of first fully formed Fellini film where he it really is like now what you would think of as a Fellini film, although he had a long career. So he kind of had a lot of different identities. But here, here's the story. In the 1954 Venice Film Festival, they were giving out the Silver Lion and Visconti had a movie called Senso. That's Lucino Visconti. And um, then Fellini had uh, La Strada there and they ended up giving the award to La Strada instead of the more political Senso. And Visconti's assistant director uh, had a whistle. And while um, Fellini was accepting the award, he was blowing the whistle, whistle really loud. And people in the audience, this is like a film festival with like, you know, great filmmakers in it started punching each other. There was a big brawl in the middle of the theater where they were handing out the award. I just wish I could have seen that. It sounds absolutely hilarious. <laughs> wow. They take it seriously, I guess. Passions run high in Italian filmmaking. I guess, yeah. But anyways, go go see more Fellini movies, everybody. He's He's a great filmmaker. I, on the other hand, was more familiar with the filmography of Tim Burton. I was wondering at first whether we'd done a Tim Burton movie before on the podcast, and we did, actually. It was the 1999 Sleepy Hollow in our Sleepy Hollow compilation coverage. That was a fun but one. But I have seen quite a few of his films. And as I mentioned, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, this was his directorial debut. 
so he had done um, some shorts. He started out as a Disney animator in the early 80s and was part of, in his incoming class, there was John Lasseter and some others from that that class, like Fresh Out of CalArt. What's the theory on that? Like, great people coming together? It's like, uh, didn't Ken Jennings and Brandon Sanderson, weren't they college roommates or something like that? You're going to have to catch me up. Who's Brandon Sanderson? Uh, he's the most popular fantasy author in the world right now. What did he write? He wrote The Mistborn Books, and he wrote Stormlight Archive, which is an ongoing series, and he sells a bajillion copies of all of his books, and... Um, he may not be the most popular, like if George R. R. Martin dropped his next book, that would probably sell more than Sanderson's next book, but he's up there right now. Interesting. I've never heard of that person. I do know Ken Jennings. I, I talked to Ken Jennings briefly once. Anyway, so he did these shorts while he was working at Disney. One was called Vincent, which I'm sure I've made you watch at some point, Dan. The like autobiographical claymation stop motion short you've definitely sent it to me yeah oh yeah you gotta watch gotta watch that one and he talks about the story's about like a little kid who's inspired by the old horror movies with vincent price and he got vincent price to narrate the film and it's like super autobiographical i'd say probably his most autobiographical feature is edward scissorhands so it's like it's that vibe of the clash between like your grandiose artist life gothic inside your head versus living in pastel suburbia that's interesting that you would call that his most autobiographical i haven't seen the other two that i would think would fit there which are big fish and ed wood well who knows what the month ahead holds <laughs> but um yeah both of those i would say are are fairly influential and honestly in ed wood i see a lot of eight and a half as well but today we're talking Pee-wee because Paul Rubens left us. So I first saw this movie, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, probably when I was like 12 or 13. I saw it on TV and had just never heard of it before. So it kind of blew my mind that there had been this theatrical outing before the Playhouse show. And you can definitely see the Burtony element of it it's like very much both burton and paul rubens mind melding but more of my connection with peewee came growing up i think back in the christmas special episode i mentioned that i got like a vhs box set of the show probably when i was like six and we would watch this on the tapes and I've kind of gone through phases where when I was first introduced to it, for whatever reason, I took it at face value. Just, okay, this is a normal thing that I'm watching. And then gradually I, I discovered, no, in fact, this is not a normal thing. This is very unusual and out there. It's very kitschy and camp and loud. <laughs> I think that says a lot about you, Brian. I haven't shown any peewee to my wife yet because she doesn't like things that have annoying voices and i'm like yeah that pretty much rules out peewee <laughs> right so the i mean the playhouse it's this zany puppet wonderland and there's like this recurring retinue of friends who come and visit peewee at the house from episode to episode 
And it never really focuses on any one thing for very long. And it's always off to the next, like, experimental cartoon short in a dozen different animation styles. But even early on, I found it really inspirational. It definitely had a big impact on my public access show, Count Gauntly's Horrors from the Public Domain. And what really spoke to me was this idea of building this environment that's like a manifestation of your mind and then bringing your friends into that to inhabit it with you. And one of the characters who was in most of the episodes was named Missy Vaughn, and her sort of sobriquet was the most beautiful woman in Puppetland. That's Miss Yvonne. And part of me has always been looking for the most beautiful woman in Puppetland, Dan. <laughs> and it's not necessarily that she has to be particularly beautiful, but she has to be in Puppetland. <laughs> That's the hard part. She has yeah. to be willing to come into the world and, and really inhabit it. Yeah. Miss Yvonne Gauntley. Yep. And so I think that's pertinent to both of these films that we're going to be talking about. Like, how does a weird artistic dude relate with women was a part of both of these movies. Right. Yeah, I can see that. It definitely carries through in very different ways. <laughs> I can maybe see the connection. Like, creator has sexual dysfunction as a cross factor of their weird creative life yeah yeah exactly and we'll get more into the comparisons and contrasts as we go as we talk about what is in these movies specifically it sounds like we're in for some fun as far as whether this pairing makes any sense at all <laughs> but i'm looking forward to talking about them both the thing that is like one-to-one -one for me is there's this piece of music on the soundtrack that I feel like Danny Elfman must have cribbed. It's this tune. Part of it is in the breakfast machine sequence in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And it's the version in eight and a half is called Carlotta's Gallop. And there's this scene where they're like eating lunch out in this park and a band strikes up and it, they just play this very bouncy, like frantic music that kind of sounds like the saber dance by Aram Kachurian. The the Pee-wee one goes... No, that's the saber dance, actually. It's hard to actually say what is each one, because they're so similar. Yeah. That was a saber dance, though. Like, if you listen to them next to each other, and we'll drop them in the Discord, that, at least, I'm confident saying is a, a connective thread. And uh, Fellini used the composer Nino Rota for uh, many of his movies. I I'm not sure how many, but I know many of them. And including Eight and a Half, and I know La Strada. I'm not sure about um, Knights of Kiberia. But he also is the guy who wrote The Godfather. Wait a minute. The music for The Godfather? Yeah. Oh, okay. The Godfather yeah. score, sorry. Okay, so he's, yeah. not, he's not Mario Puzo. No, another Italian guy. But I just think of this music as sounding Italian, which make it works for The Godfather, even though it's an American film, because it's about the Sicilian mafia, you know. You said you haven't seen The Godfather 3, right? I have not seen Godfather 3. Okay, because at one part in that movie, they're like having a party and somebody pulls out a guitar and starts playing and singing The Godfather theme song. Whoa. And it's like shatters the 
diegesis. Interesting. Wait a minute, has that been playing the whole time? Yeah. In the world? Yeah, uh, Lestrada has a good moment like that. Like, there's a theme we've been hearing for a while. And then one time we're hearing it, and it cuts to this character who's been kind of alluded to as potentially being an interesting character. And it like it's this kind of dramatic, goes right center frame, and he's playing guitar. And he, you can tell that he's playing the theme that we've been hearing for a few scenes now. It's like a, a cool moment. I always find it interesting when films go back and forth on how in-universe the music is. Like that was another thing that um, Scorsese did a lot of too, is sometimes his music would be playing like on a jukebox and sometimes then it would like carry over to the next scene, but the next scene is not where the jukebox was playing, you know? So stuff like that. So let's talk a little bit about Eight and a Half. What makes it up? Because it, it is like a lot of little episodes, which honestly, Big Adventure, I would say is another connection. Very kind of all over the place. But Eight and a Half follows a director as the protagonist. The character is named Guido Anselmi. But I definitely saw this as a Fellini insert. And is that off base, do you think, or apt? Apt. This came pretty shortly after La Dolce Vita, which was greeted rapturously. And it was like, oh my God, this Fellini, he's the world's hottest director. What is he going to make next? And then he kind of hit a writer's block. And this is kind of what came out of it. Right. And that's definitely the premise here, because the director, main character, doesn't know what he's doing with the current film project that he is working on. And they're never directly telling you what the film is that he's making. Like, I don't know if we ever even hear a title. And the effect is that the movie that he's making is the movie that we're watching. Well, it's there's, kind of, yeah, it's it's about its own construction or lack thereof. I was thinking a little bit about that. I, well, I, I think we can kind of get there. There is one other detail we have about the movie that he's making. Can I share what that is? So I think what you're going to say, it's interesting because we keep seeing him like casting characters and talking about the characters that are in the film. And they're very much stand-ins for the people in his life like his wife and his dead parents and him but then the genre element that we know about is a big spaceship they keep talking about the spaceship i was like what the hell is the spaceship I, I, that caught me off guard so somehow it's a science fiction epic but also very grounded in his personal life specifically what do they say on The Simpsons? You want a TV show that's totally realistic, but also completely off the wall and swarming with magic robots. <laughs> that's what this movie seems to be. Yeah. But always like through a thick curtain. We, we never have a full sense. And like the character is so eaten up by this indecision that he's taking a sabbatical at like a sanitarium. That's probably not quite the word for it. It's like a spa, but with it seems like a medical aspect to it. Yeah, it's like a resort, but there are people looking after him and, and trying to help take care of him and stuff. So there's a little more to it than that. Right. And in the meantime, his producer and his 
like underlings are coming by this it's not quite a hospital this this resort and asking him okay can we move on now like what is it that we're making please give us some instructions or a budget plan because you're burning time and money and no movie is getting made and apparently that was a Fellini thing too I, I read a interview with an actor who um said he like showed up one day ready to act and it was like Fellini wasn't there so like where's Fellini he's in the office he went to the office and Fellini was like had a guy a prop guy there who had 500 different boxes of cigarettes like different designs for boxes of cigarettes and they spent the whole day looking at different boxes of cigarettes and debating about which would be the best one to be a prop in a scene they were about to shoot just for that one like little thing that was going to be on the table you know wow yeah sometimes there can be too many choices just narrow it down for me in some ways this is like a midlife crisis frozen on celluloid because guido this director is supposed to be 43, which is the same age that Fellini was when he made the movie. And from what we hear about him from other characters, he's looking back on like a broadly successful directorial career, but with some hits and misses. Like he's reading reviews of some of his past movies, maybe his most recent movie. And one says that it was like drowning in symbolism or something. Too many symbols, too many metaphors. And so he says multiple things to different people to the effect that he wants this to be a truthful film this time. Strip away the symbolism, make a movie that tells the truth. How he's going to do that with a giant spaceship, I don't know. Uh, and I think that's also a little bit of like a... This whole thing is a reflexive joke to some extent. And that's, to some extent, I think, making fun of his history with the the neorealism it's like he he's had this career that's kind of shied away from that but now he's like you know what i should make something real except there's a spaceship involved for some reason so i i thought that was pretty funny although this time i caught a little bit more of what i guess the story is because one of the people who's hovering around him persistently is a writer character and the writer says something about how it's going to be a nuclear Noah's Ark. Like, the world got destroyed in an atomic war and a few people got away on this spaceship that's going to be the Noah's Ark and take them to some new world. So that does get said, and I caught it this time, but it's definitely not lingered on. So, one thing I'll say about this movie is that I think I would understand it a little more if I watched it again. It's like, there's a whole bunch of different characters and they all get introduced at like the 15 minute mark and then hang around for like an hour and a half, I guess, basically till the end of the movie. And it's like a bunch of beautiful Italian women and then a bunch of middle aged Italian guys. And I really got lost on who was who and what the connections were between them and why I cared about this one as opposed to this one. I don't know if you had that impression at all, Brian. I had a lot of that, especially with the women because they don't look too different from each other. And prominently, one is named Carla and one is Claudia. And I don't know, those names aren't different enough for me. And they didn't, you know, they, they're they like sultry, dark-haired, 
like one is French and that sets her apart because her voice sounds different. But um, yeah, and the idea that he's got like a bunch of different interchangeable women interacting with him is kind of a point of it. And so they 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 blended together. And yeah, it's he has a bunch of like paunchy filmmaker friends who are going around with these beautiful women. So yeah, I don't blame you for developing some face blindness here. I just kept seeing things that were like, oh, that makes me think of something else. And a lot of it was, uh, there's a couple of Lynch films. I mean, Mulholland Drive has a lot of this in particular. Um, but it also has, do you remember the Pulp Fiction dance it has in here? It's like almost exactly the Pulp Fiction dance in an early scene in this movie. Oh, interesting. With like the arms? Yeah, they're doing like a twist and it's one of the Italian actresses and she's got kind of like hair like Uma Thurman in in that scene. Yes, that's true. I guess I did notice that. Yeah, I mean, as I said, this feels like a missing piece for me. Just that clearly this is a movie that filmmakers would like. Yeah. And the way that Guido perceives his surroundings and thus the way the film is presented is almost like Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen where he's like thinking about every moment of his life all the time and so we've got like scenes where he's a little boy bleeding into scenes where he's the grown man and like he'll walk outside and be talking with like his his dad and then like he walks through the garden with the dad and then the dad climbs down into a like a grave so it's an interesting presentation of the idea that we kind of carry the people that we've met with us. We're like the sum of our experiences. And even if it's in the past, it lives on through us. Yeah, that's well said, I think. So this movie is often cited as like primarily a reflection of the creative process and that actually is not the number one thing I would take away from this movie, but it's like there's enough going on in this movie that it could still be like the number two thing that you take away from this movie. And it's still a big thing here. So, I mean, I, I can definitely see why, like you said, a lot of filmmakers have latched onto it because it like it very visually and cinematically represents that process of kind of assimilating those experiences and, just in, in a very uh, unusual, striking sort of way that kind of really makes you feel these things kind of merging together. I mean, there's a handful of scenes in particular where it's like all different memories of his life kind of colliding together. But then also we see that like literalized in the film that he's trying to come up with, too. You know, it's like rotten out of his brain into into the the struggle to, to actually make a movie that he he's going through. Definitely. So as I mentioned, he claims to value truth and like, that's what he's looking for in this film. And yet repeatedly he's lying to the women in his life. Like he's got this mistress who comes to the set and he kind of shuffles her off into a separate hotel. And then later on his wife comes and she calls him out. She says, what do you have to say to strangers if you can't tell the truth to the people closest to you? And 
it really seems like he's trying to use this film project to analyze and resolve his personal demons with the implication that maybe that's what all directors are trying to do. Like a filmmaking enterprise is a therapy session. It's kind of what we saw when we watched uh, The Fablemans not too long ago. Oh, yeah. Good connection. It's like this is the sandbox where you can move all the pieces around and control them. And people are like puppets that you can use and kind of work through things that way without having to really talk to people. Well, another filmmaker who I just see a ridiculous amount of Fellini influence in his film is Woody Allen. And particularly after he kind of breaks away from his quote unquote early comma funny films, um, he, he spends a lot of time thinking about the concept of therapy. And obviously he, he typically like plays him a, a insert character in his movies and he made so many of them. And so like, you definitely see that concept played out in Woody Allen movies. Also, I mean, casting an insert character who's just surrounded by beautiful women throwing themselves at him is very famously a Woody Allen thing too. Although in that case, Woody Allen actually plays himself. So it adds an an extra layer to that. Tarantino, same thing. Yeah. And, uh, there's Woody Allen has a movie. I really like called Stardust Memories and it's not quite an eight and a half remake, but it's also not, not, Interesting. I got to check out some Woody Allen films. But as part of this crisis that he's going through, this crisis of not having inspiration to make a film, crisis of getting older, Guido is musing on his relationships with women and their roles in his life. And it also has some things to say about their role in the film industry, especially at the time. But yeah, as we've said, there's a gender dynamic in this movie where it's these old dudes who have the money and the power and they draw this crowd of of beautiful younger women around them. The French actress uses the phrase, she says she has enormous ambitions. And I mean, that's that's just kind of the thing that we're looking at here where it's like, if you want to climb and have the fame and success in the film industry, the implication is you gotta ally yourself intimately with these bigwig producers and directors. So obviously there's some skeeviness to that, particularly with a modern lens. Oh yeah. I mean, it's definitely kind of off-putting male fantasy and I think it's aware of it to some extent. Like it, it definitely deconstructs it, but it still kind of depicts it and I can see why it would be off-putting if you're of a certain mindset or you just like, I don't know, don't like spending time with skeevy dudes. You know, if that if that bumps you out, you're going to have a bad time here. It's not for everybody. Different strokes for different folks. <laughs> but I agree that it's introspective. Like if this movie is up its own ass, at least it's checking for polyps. It's <laughs> a good line. Yeah. So the whole thing with the women comes to a head in one of many dream sequences. And in this one, Guido is imagining like his own personal harem that he's lording over this like Roman bath type villa 
that's all completely populated and staffed by like every woman that he's ever spoken to in his life. And they dote on him. And something that's going on in this house as as the scene unfolds is we learn that once the women are past a certain age, they get exiled to an upper story of the house where you don't have to look at them anymore, I guess. But the, in the midst of this scene, it it comes to light that one of them has like just passed the age barrier and needs to be exiled. She says, no, no, I'm 26. <laughs> and it had me thinking of all the headlines about Leo last year, where it said that as soon as somebody's older than 25, he'll break up with her. Right. And people are making charts of that. It basically holds true. Like as soon as they, as soon as she crosses the into 26 within a year, she, they're, they're broken up. This also had me thinking of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The one I forget, which I always get them all. Castle the, Anthrax. Yes. Where there's all the women doting on the guy who stumbles in there. Except here, it's not for parody, at least not explicitly for parody. Right. But, I mean, there is an aspect of humor because the women rise up. There's this rebellion briefly. And he's almost like a lion tamer. Like, he's whipping them away. And uh, ultimately, I think he quells the waters. He's able to uh, he's able to exile that one. But um, something that I saw a connection to... Have you ever watched Venture Brothers, Dan? No. So there's an episode in that where... I mean, long story. Everybody on that show is kind of a failure, especially the dad, who he was like a boy adventurer when he was a kid. And now he's washed up. He's like living off his old glory. But at one point, other characters go inside his mind, the dad's brain. And they're seeing in one of the compartments of his brain, they visit his id. And the id is represented as this like harem room where it's, it's lorded over by like a 13 year old version of the dad and he oversees this group and it's again it's like all the women that he's maybe had a shot with at some point even if it never went anywhere that we've seen earlier in the show so just seeing that idea that like maybe this is something we maintain in our subconscious of it's like a little you know like a rolodex or something an imaginary compendium of personalities and our skewed way we perceive them and to me, I said that the creative process wasn't the number one theme of this movie for me. To me, it was the the sense of sexual slash romantic obsolescence and like, I don't know, how one, as they're aging, figures out how to, to spend their life with someone they love. And like, what is it that they're looking for in romance as they grow older? Because that's kind of how the whole creative process manifests itself for him is like thinking about these women and like which part of his life they represent. I mean, there's a lot of layers. It's not just that. But that's to me was the one that really stuck out about this movie. And just like whenever he's facing a conundrum, there's a new woman who represents an aspect of that conundrum. Yeah, I, I exactly right. There's another one of these flashbacks like to his early childhood, one of the earliest flashbacks where 
he's like in this like a catholic school and he sneaks away with these other little boys and there's like this <laughs> swamp hag who lives in like a concrete mushroom on the beach and I, I mean you could kind of call her a prostitute i guess but it's like the transaction is they give her a nickel and she like shakes around it's it's very ghoulish <laughs> it's it's so bizarre so it's like, yeah, sexual awakening on the one hand, but also like a clown act or something. Really weird. And I saw it kind of interrogating the idea that people are just a storytelling resource to a director. They're just a, a tool, like a C-stand or a light. And kind of i guess the lesson that he learns over the course if there is an overarching narrative is that this is not the way to solve your problems you got to actually interact and form personal relationships to progress right and that ultimately makes things richer which i mean i think is a an admirable lesson it's like it's not like there's a limited amount of love and creativity and life force to give out there it's like the more that you kind of give the more that you get too right as the movie goes along his wife shows up on the set and she is kind of confronting him what do you actually want what do you want out of me what do you want out of your life because you're kind of all over the place and obviously you got multiple mistresses and you need to find, like, a solid base and direction. And he gets really jealous for a couple scenes. And it's it doesn't even seem like the the guy that the wife is flirting with, like, that they actually are having an affair. But he still gets really jealous. And it's like, come on, dude. Yeah, well, there's this, like, nice guy in the entourage who's always following the wife around. Like, do you want a cigarette, Louisa? <laughs> Jason Funderburker. Hey, Sarah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah that guy was a toad it's almost the season man they took it down off max just before the fall oh no so you gotta find some other way but i i'll bet you can do it over the garden wall for those of us who haven't been listening since the fifth episode of the podcast <laughs> here in 137 in a way, it's like the Odyssey that we watched recently, where the guy can cavort with any number of sea goddesses, but God forbid Penelope have a wandering eye. That's not going to fly. Maybe it's a Mediterranean thing. Definitely some uh, stereotypical Mediterranean men behavior here. But Louisa, the wife, has a good line. She says, you put all of us in it referring to the people in his life are basically one-for-one one characters in the film because we see, like, auditions and they're practicing reading lines that we've heard the people in his life say. She says, but you only put us in the way it suits you. So characters that are drawn for life are inherently reductive, essentially. They're limited by the perspective of whoever is writing this script or novel or whatever it is. It's only the way that that person sees those people and turns them into characters. So in the end, the verdict is that this interminable film project can't be Guido's therapy. 
he's got to like figure out his relationship with his wife and and that's going to be the most meaningful thing so in the end everybody comes together for this like press conference that i think the producer arranges he says okay we're going to go out to the spaceship and we're going to give everybody an update on the film project so that they know we're not just spinning our wheels and so everybody jumps in their big vintage italian cars and drives out into this fantastical set piece which like until now we've been inside most of the time i mean kind of there have been dream sequences and and things but largely we've been within the bounds of this recuperation facility and then suddenly we're out like in this sand plain with this towering 200 foot tall scaffold like, it's not a spaceship yet. It's like a big wooden skeleton thing looming over this salt flat or whatever it is. Right. They're, like, still working on building it, basically. And I like the arc. I, 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 for whatever reason, I didn't catch that detail. But that adds, like, a, a resonant layer of, like, the movie-making process as survival, too, you know? Right. So they, they all come out. They all convene at this press conference. And what Guido tells the crowd, I guess, I mean, it's all metaphorically presented, but I guess what he says is actually, we're not going to do this. We're going to stop. We're not making the movie. Which is pretty bold. I mean, I don't know if these days a director would get to say that. I think it would be like any number of the directors who get canned for creative differences in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's like, actually, Edgar Wright is not going to make Ant-Man. It's going to be some other guy. Speaking of those, I still can't get over the the Han Solo origin story movie, which I still haven't seen. Lord and Miller? They went from Lord and Miller, like the most stylish, postmodern, loopy humor, ratatat writers to Ron Howard, who's like the most down the middle filmmaker that we have of the second half of the 20th century. I feel like Lord Miller walked in and pitched that they were going to include the I'm Han Solo dance number from Star Wars Connect on the Xbox 360. And they're like, get out of the office. I'm Han Solo. I'm Han Solo. I'm Han Solo. I'm Han Solo. Solo gonna drop that in the discord for sure yeah please do but in the final fantastic sequence of the film guido takes his wife by the hand i guess kind of representing that this is what he's going to prioritize now mending bridges building interpersonal relationships and then though they dance off into the horizon as part of this like enormous conga line with everybody else who's been in the movie and a bunch of clowns show up in a marching band. So it's like, maybe this is overly sunny, unrealistically positive, happy ending and real life may be a little more complicated. At least that was my reading of, of it. I like that. I hadn't thought about that. It was a little bit of like, just a waterfall of weird images in the last 15 minutes that I didn't quite make sense of all of it, but I, I like your take on it. There is a lot of weirdness in this movie, and maybe I can at least use that as a springboard into our next film that we're talking about here tonight. But 
what was the description that you found, Dan? Fellini called it a beautiful confusion. Oh, yeah. So as he was making it, he had trouble coming up with a title for it. And I think eight and a half is kind of stupid, but whatever. Um, the other title that uh, they went pretty far down the path for was La Bella Confusione, The Beautiful Confusion, which I think is would fit very well thematically for this. I agree. And, you know, we're not too, too far away from episode 150 and we'll probably have some kind of spectacular. So th think about best and worst titles of all the movies that we've talked about. That might be one of our awards. One movie before we abandon eight and a half that I saw connections with that I watched kind of at your recommendation. Well, we did our episode where we talked about all the Zemeckis films. And at that point, Dan had seen all the Zemeckis films and I hadn't. But then I went ahead and I watched the one with Steve Carell. And it's called Welcome to Marwin. The one where the dude like got hit on the head at some point, And now he lives in this dream world where every woman that he's ever met is a doll in his dollhouse. That movie is fucking wild, man. We should talk about that at some point. But you're absolutely right. 100%. I don't know if it, I'm guessing it was intentional, but the thing where he takes like all the women and basically makes them representative of concepts in his art, it's exactly what's happening in Marwin. Have you seen the movie Adaptation, Brian? No. Tell me about that one. I actually was thinking of choosing it for next episode, but I think it would be too similar to this. So it's by, um, I think it's Spike Jones. I want to pick a Spike Jones movie at some point. I, I have not seen it though. And it's um, written by Charlie Kaufman, who I think wrote Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind that we talked about a while ago. And it's about a, a guy who's trying to write a movie. And then he ends up writing a movie that's an adaptation of him struggling to write a movie and trying to write a movie. So it's like a very meta thing. So I don't have a great jumping off from one movie into the other one, but you want to talk about Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Dan? Sure. So I had never seen this movie before this week. I knew I was going to see it at some point, whether or not you picked it, because I know it's a movie that's very meaningful to you, Brian. Which, even just saying that out loud feels like it's misrepresenting what Pee-wee's Big Adventure actually is. Because it's this very silly, very cartoonish story of uh, a guy searching for his bike. And we can maybe talk a little bit more about that. But it's it's just this, it's the Tim Burton movie, which means it's full of like this big uh, evocative iconography. But like not in a especially arty way just in like a if it's in an arty way it's a pop art way it's just like uh big bold colors and and things that are sometimes clever sometimes just striking and very kind of if we want to draw connections to eight and a half it's a bunch of like misadventures of this weird guy like you said and it just kind of goes on and on with peewee encountering these one weird scenario with these weird characters who like sort of accept him exactly as he is inexplicably over and over again. Right. 
it is peppered throughout also with a handful of dream sequences, things that are like explicitly dreams. Something weird will happen and then he'll wake up. So eight and a half started out with a dream sequence. So same that that's a comparison. That's something that is the same. In eight and a half, it started out and he has that dream where he's like in traffic and a cloud comes inside his car and then he's like flying in the sky. That was an insane and like terrific opening 10 or 15 minutes because it just kind of floats so freely in from vaguely realistic to like now he's like literally flying up in the sky with a rope tied to his ankle. It was kind of blowing me away. I want to know how they did that shot where he's flying up in the sky like a kite. Maybe it wasn't a real person. Maybe it was like a prosthetic leg. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's true. Because you only see the leg. Not like Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise would have been up there on the kite. Yeah. You would have face planted down 150 feet. (laughs) It's for the art. Do you think if he died making Mission Impossible 8 that they would still release it? Wow. I oh if they didn't release it, think about the like pirate scene that there would be <laughs> smuggling the Tom Cruise death cut. <laughs> Wasn't that what movie was The Crow where someone died making it? Right. It was like Bruce Lee's was it his son? son? I think Brandon Lee, maybe. Yeah. But I think they did end up releasing it. I just don't know. I've never seen it. I don't know how they... I I assume they didn't address it. Right. I'm not sure. But, yeah, in the dream in the start of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, he's, like, racing in the Tour de France. And then, just as he's about to receive the grand prize, his alarm clock goes off and wakes him up. And... So, if you haven't seen Pee-wee before, it's kind of hard to explain, but he's a man-child. He's a, a physically has the body of an adult man, but he acts like a crazy kid and just very frenetic and hyperactive. And he's always doing this laugh. <laughs> what do your Pee-wee laugh, Brian? <laughs> Yeah, and it's stuff like, it's it's always, it's like always on. And I know you are, but what am I? And there's something, you use the word kitsch, I think that's the right word, about the way that he carries himself and like the way that, like you said, he's always on. And it's like a madcap retrospective look at childhood, but also still like, like I could, sh- I feel like I could show this to my six-year-old and three-year-old kids and they would like relate to Pee-wee. So it's not like it's inauthentic, but it's definitely like constructed in a sort of idealized childhood, I guess. Right. It's like if you were a kid in the 50s, but didn't have any like Ward Cleaver father constraining you. So he wakes up and jumps out of bed and He's in this house, which is not quite Pee-wee's Playhouse, but it's close. It's full of all this stuff, toys and just larger-than-life props. 
like big papier-mâché dragon heads and toy fire trucks and a fireman's pole that he slides down to get to breakfast. And, like, one of the windows is a fish tank. And he has, like, a scuba diver suit standing out in the yard that he turns a little valve on and it sprays out water to be the sprinkler. And the art design is wild. Just, again, not quite on the level of Pee-wee's Playhouse, but going for that same aesthetic, I would say. And the soundtrack is by Danny Elfman, the first of many of his collaborations with Tim Burton. And the soundtrack is, like, very present. It's so good, too. I was like, holy shit, this is... I can see why Danny Elfman was, like, briefly a transformative figure in the world of scoring movies, because this is, this is an incredible score as, as it's going through. Which, I, I mean, I hadn't heard the score before. But you're right, it's also, it is very present. It made me think of Williams like that. Like, it's, you're always hearing it there. Right. And Pee-wee has a breakfast machine that makes his breakfast. And, I mean, you, you may struggle to picture that, but it's like a Rube Goldberg device. I actually, in my top 100 films, I realized there are at least three breakfast machines. Because <laughs> Pee-wee's got one, there's one in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and Doc Brown has one in Back to the Future. And I think that has my uh, favorite series of props there's like an anvil falling down and like this pterodactyl skeleton dragging things. And it's just all this wild stuff. And there's an Abraham Lincoln mannequin flipping pancakes. They get stuck on the ceiling. Yeah. And so this is the beginning of a typical day for Pee Wee. This is <laughs> just how he spends his time every morning, I guess. And he goes out after his breakfast to visit his most prized possession, which is this customized red and white Schwinn bicycle. Apparently, Paul Rubens came up with this story concept because when he was spending time on the Warner Brothers lot, he saw that everybody got around on bicycles. Oh, interesting. Okay. And he thought to really belong there, he would need to get a bicycle too. So Pee-wee is about to leave on his bike and he runs into our antagonist, who is another man-child named Francis Buxton, this heavy-set dude who is the rich character, like evil Richie Rich or something. Oh, he, who he made me think of was the guy in Gravity Falls. What's that guy's name? Gideon. Yeah. Good catch. That's right. He is like Gideon. He almost sounds like him, too. He's got an annoying voice. Lots of annoying voices in this mm -hmm. film, if that's the sort of thing to set you off. But Francis Buxton tries to buy Pee-wee's bike. But Pee-wee wouldn't sell for a million billion trillion dollars. <laughs> Is this one of the movies, Brian, where you can just hit play in your head and see the whole thing like we talked about last week? It's pretty close. If it's not quite there, it's because it's so scattershot. Yeah, it's got a lot going on. I can see that. But yeah. Definitely, there's a lot of, of beats that I know pretty well. <laughs> One thing that Pee-wee does when he laughs, he'll, sometimes he'll laugh so hard he starts rolling around on the floor laughing, which another thing I'll link in the Discord is this fantastic stand-up routine that he did on David Letterman, which I'm sure I talked about back way back when we covered the Christmas special. But, you know, 
maybe it's annoying to laugh at your own jokes, but if you take it past a certain point, it goes back to being funny again. And like him, him rolling around laughing makes me laugh. There's been a clip that I feel like I had seen maybe five years ago, but you know how the internet has a memory of just like a year, if even, but this clip of this guy who's filming his girlfriend or wife uh, in the bathroom. She's complaining because he, he messed with her soap and she's like, what did you do to my soap? And then she's like washing her face with the bar of soap. And he's like deeply suppressing a laugh and you could hear it like on the verge of coming out. And then it just comes out and he's laughing really hard. And he says, it's a potato. So like he had cut up a potato and the skin off of it and like replaced her soap with it. And so she was wiping her face with a raw potato. And what makes it work so well is that he's like laughing as he's saying it. It's a potato. And then they both start laughing. But that's the thing is infectious laughter will do it, you know? Exactly. Man, I saw one video where somebody was getting interviewed and he laughs he gets asked a question and he laughs and then the host is cracking up and like for a moment you can't hear what's going on and then the host holds the microphone up to the person who's laughing and he's laughing like <laughs> oh i have <laughs> seen that guy <laughs> and then everybody in the crowd starts laughing but peewee says no dice you're not gonna buy my bike and he rides off into town to this shopping center where he's got like this little circle of friends that are all yeah you said they accept peewee for his eccentricity but they kind of have their eccentricities too he's kind of like found this little family of weirdos because he goes to the magic shop and the magic shop salesman is like i got your new order in peewee he's got all the stuff all for peewee's antics and, you know, in this magic shop, he sells more great prop design. There's just, like, shrunken heads and giant heads and headlamp glasses and all kinds of gizmos. And this is a moment where the film feels, like, a little bit satirical. In some ways, it's what a kid thinks that grown-up life will be. It's like... Oh, that's when I'll have the money and the freedom to go to the magic shop and choose to buy whatever I want. And I could go every day if I wanted to. And But also it's like the an exaggerated version of, you said like leave it to beaver or something, but like 1950s carefree life where there's like no outside societal pressures. It's like everybody's just riding around on their, their bikes and going to magic shops and arguing about who's going to buy whose bike from whom, etc. Good point. We don't know what Pee-wee's source of income is. And I do like that when he's doing the magic shopping, there are like people who are on Pee-wee's level and people who aren't. There's like somebody else there shopping a woman and she gives a weird look, you know, at this constantly chuckling weirdo and that was something that makes peewee's playhouse work too is there's there's friends like cowboy curtis and miss yvonne who are very much 
like share Pee-wee's zaniness. And then there are people like Reba the male lady who's just trying to do her job and is always like put out by Pee-wee's antics. Which, fair. <laughs> exactly. He could be tiring, one imagines. After the magic shop, he goes to the bike shop, where I guess they've been helping him customize the bike. Give it, you know, upgrades that we haven't necessarily seen all of yet. But the bike shop's mechanic is a girl named Dottie. The actress is E.G. Daly, who I guess was on Saturday Night Live at one point. But she was also the voice of Tommy Pickles on Rugrats. Ah, interesting. Is that one you can hear in your head now that you know it? Kind of. I think she might have also been Babe the Pig. She doesn't have that many lines. Right. It's, it's kind of like she's there early on and then at the end. But she has a crush on Pee-wee. <laughs> For unclear reasons. Yeah. Again, I think it's like a kid imagining what adulthood is going to be like. All the beautiful women will be wanting to ask you on dates. <laughs> but what's so funny to me is that Pee-wee is not having it. He's like always rolling your, rolling his eyes. So I was I spent a lot of time thinking about how much this was intentionally like about the fact that this is kind of playing in the gay camp sort of territory a little bit and obviously paul rubens was i don't know exactly what his sexuality was hard to say what paul rubens's sexuality was and we're not going to dive into it too much but uh definitely not normal let's say <laughs> yes he's got some some weirdness in his in his closet but yeah, I, I I think it's funny. I always laugh because one of the best lines in the movie, and we get it more than once, is he says, you don't want to get mixed up with a guy like me, Dottie. I'm a loner, a rebel. It's yeah, it's like imagining himself as James Dean when he's the exact opposite of that. <laughs> I, I'm sure I've seen at least one T-shirt that says I'm a loner, Dottie, a rebel. But, uh, I mean, he kind of is, though, a loner and a rebel in some ways, you know? Yeah. And Paul Rubens is, too. Mm-hmm. But then when he leaves the bike shop, when he's been doing his shopping, he's had his bike tied up in the plaza, chained to a clown animatronic, which is out, out there, because, of course. But he emerges to find that the bike is gone. This impossible length of chain has been severed, and the bike is gone. And so now he's in panic mode. He's got to try to find the bike, which is the only thing in life that means anything to him. And Brian, this had me wondering if you were going to connect Pee-wee to a classic Italian film from, you know, 50 plus years ago. Why not Bicycle Thieves sitting right there? I guess that's not a movie about making movies. But. Right. I did mention Bicycle Thieves in my discussion post in the film history class, but also I've never seen Bicycle Thieves. Okay. Well, you'll never guess what happens in that movie. They get their bikes stolen, don't they? Yeah, exactly. And then 
I mean, there, that's very much what I was talking about that Fellini was kind of reacting to. Like, that's a classic neorealism film. And there, it's all about how, like, the bike is basically a symbol of their ability to be a functional member of society. And they're, like, desperately trying to get the bike back because that's the only way that they can do their job and, and get money. And it's just, like, the entire system in society rigged against them and it's like a kind of movie that's just not very much fun i don't know if i've seen it end to end but i've seen more than an hour of it and you kind of get why it was influential but it's like just a a downer and b like very intentionally kind of unstylized and anticlimactic all throughout because he's always looking for the bike but he can't find the bike because that's the metaphor of the movie brian so oh okay what sounds like maybe I didn't miss too much. I mean, that was the sense I got. I feel like I have seen a chunk of it as well, but not enough that I could like comprehensively make the comparison. But it's there in the title. A bike gets stolen. So I assumed it it had some through lines. Mm -hmm. But Pee-wee goes and he confronts Francis because that's the obvious culprit. Oh, Francis must have taken it. Francis claims he didn't take it. <laughs> this confrontation is them wrestling in a swimming pool there's just everything is like larger than life everything is colorful like the way that he sneaks into francis's house is he has this like door knocking gadget that distracts the butler and it's like this mechanical hand that's made just to knock on a door I love all the props in this movie. Yeah, it's great. It's like Looney Tunes come to life. This is like something that Bugs Bunny would do, you know? Right. And I actually read that the next movie after this that Tim Burton did was Beetlejuice. Like, even before Batman. So, they were just letting him go crazy from early on. Oh, wow. That's a pretty great opening stretch of films. Yeah, for sure. So, Pee-wee is unsure where to turn. He's wandering around, looking for a direction, trying to figure out where he should go to find his bike. And he is wandering through this rainy alley in the nighttime. And when I visited Warner Brothers Studio this past spring, I stood in this alley. We walked around the Warner Brothers lot and several places they pointed out, they said, okay, this is the scene in Pee-wee's Big Adventure when... So I walked around this alley. It wasn't raining at the time. They also said, though, that there's a corner in this alley is where they shot the Spider-Man kiss. Oh, okay. So that surprised me. But at all the studios we went to, they talked about that, like, the companies mix and match. They share time on their lots. Just one guy. Just one guy. Just one, one Spider-Man. Spider or or woman. woman. We don't, don't know. know. For, for sure. sure. But the way he says for sure is so good. <laughs> I've been watching that clip and I think my wife wants to ban any references to just <laughs> one guy. <laughs> you just got to be real subtle about it. Little chunks. <laughs> for sure. We don't know. For sure. But in this alley, he comes across a fortune teller. And so he goes and asks the fortune teller where his bike is 
And she does like a usual suspects thing where she's looking around the office. This must have been even before usual suspects, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's less impactful, but it's the same gimmick where she's like picking random bits of text and using it to spin this tale that she's telling him. And she says, you need to go look at the Alamo in the basement. So Alamo in the basement, that's where he's going next. And so he's got to hitch a ride to Texas. And from this point on, it's like a big road movie where it's like planes, trains and automobiles, just different means of conveyance. And all along the way, he's going to be meeting these different zany characters. I also feel like this is the moment where in that spirit, it kind of doesn't I wouldn't say it loses coherency, but it like loses any sense that it's anything other than just a bunch of sketches. It's like at one point when I was watching, I was like, what is he trying to do again? Oh, yeah. Find his bike because it like it, it doesn't matter for like a 40 minute stretch what he's actually doing out there. Yeah, because so he hitches a ride to texas and it takes several steps like at one point he's driving with a convict and the con <laughs> the convict says or because peewee asks what do you what were you in jail for he says i took a knife and you know those tags that say do not remove under penalty of law on mattresses well i cut one of them off and I was talking to my brother Andrew recently in the wake of Paul Rubens' death because he also rewatched Big Adventure. And he said, you know what? This time I realized the convict probably didn't cut a tag off a mattress. <laughs> I mean, hard to hard to say for sure, but I think he's probably right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> the joke. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh... I don't know if you've... Have you ever seen There's Something About Mary by the Farley Brothers? No, never saw that one. Um, I like that one. It's... I mean, it's got ups and downs, but there's this exact... Well, not this exact gag, but pretty much this exact gag where he hitchhikes with someone that... There are signs, but he doesn't quite comprehend them that he's with someone who very much might kill him at any moment. <laughs> Another time, Pee-wee hitches a ride with this lady trucker who tells a story of the worst accident I ever seen. And, like, for a minute, suddenly it's a horror movie because she turns into this claymation ghoul that snarls at him. Yeah, for like two seconds, and it's a jump scare. I can see why that would be a traumatizing moment if you're a kid, because like everything leading up to that, you probably don't quite pick up on the dimensions of the hitchhiker who is got a knife and a gun. But um, then all of a sudden, yeah, large Marge is uh, there is no questioning that she's she's scary. And then in what I would say is probably the most iconic scene, if not the breakfast machine earlier on. Pee-wee has a heart-to-heart -heart talk with a waitress at this diner that he stops at. And they go to watch the sunrise at the top of a giant T-Rex statue. So this is a roadside attraction in California called the Cabazon Dinosaurs. 
It's also in the 1989 movie The Wizard with Fred Savage. But, I mean, it's just the perfect selection of, like, larger-than-life kitsch ephemera. Have you ever been there, Brian? I've never been there, believe it or not. I gotta still check this one off. Yeah, that's one on your list. Because you really can go up in it like that. Oh, wow. And, yeah, I mean, it's just a perfect image of, it's very Burtony, it's very much Pee-wee, of them looking out the jaws of this, like, plaster dinosaur. Yeah. At the sunrise, talking about following your dreams. I could, as I was watching this, I was like, okay, I get, I get Brian a little bit more watching this movie. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a missing piece. But, <laughs> then... Like, her big lumberjack boyfriend has been spying on them, having this romantic moment inside the dinosaur. So then he's chasing Pee-wee with, a, like, a big bone that he's gonna beat him with, like a caveman. And Pee-wee hops aboard a train. And then, you know, stealth train month pick. Because he's going along now with bums riding the rails like Sullivan. Finally, Pee-wee makes it to Texas, and he gets to the Alamo, and so he goes in the door and he says, take me to the basement. I need to see the basement. And, well, he doesn't get it quite out, because there's a tour in progress, and they say, hold your questions until the end of the tour. And so then more of Pee-wee rolling his eyes, just the frustration of having to tolerate other people, <laughs> and not always be the one steering the ship. And then finally, the, the tour draws to an end, and he says, now can we see the basement? And she says, there's no basement at the Alamo. And everybody starts laughing at him. <laughs> like, just, like, when would this really happen? That's a good metaphor for life. There's no basement in the Alamo. It's, I feel like I got to keep that one in my back pocket for when <laughs> something slightly insane based on a, a, just an idiotic presumption. <laughs> blows up in my face <laughs> of course there's no basement in the Alamo and yeah so then now he's really directionless because he's been given a bum steer and now he's in Texas and has no idea where the bike is and he runs into the waitress again because she's been inspired by Pee Wee to go realize her dream so she dumped her man and now she's off to Paris but when he runs into her again he tells her that he hasn't found the bike. He says, The Alamo was built without a basement. Some things they just don't teach in school. <laughs> and then, yeah, there's like some more just wandering now because he really has no direction. He ends up at a biker bar. And something I learned this time is that there's cameos in this movie from like all the Pee Wee regulars except... There's no Lawrence Fishburne. He he wasn't part of the stable yet, but like all the others. And so Elvira is in the movie as a biker chick who's part of this gang. Did not recognize her, but I saw it later. Yeah, this was the first time I noticed it. And I've seen this movie many times. But these bikers are harassing him because, well, he doesn't fit in for one. And then he knocks over all their motorbikes. I feel like there's multiple gags of 
a domino effect of him knocking one thing down and a bunch of things get knocked down. <laughs> I guess that's true. Because it happens in the bike shop and then later in the biker bar. But they're ready to string him up. And then he says, wait, let me have a last request. And then he does a dance on the bar to tequila, the instrumental piece. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. And he's got these like high platform disco shoes. And this is one moment. It's like, you kind of just got to see it. Yeah. It's so weird. I could try to describe the dance he does. Cause it does not look like a normal dance. It, it, I kept coming back to like, this is a kid's brain because it's like a way a kid would dance. If they've never learned how to dance, he like w- brings his arms back and forth and kind of like steps around a little bit. It's very, very goofy (laughs) and memorable. But this wins everybody over. Suddenly they're all on his side. And I don't know, something about this scene, it's hard to convey, but it's like, it it gets you on Pee-wee's side. Oh yeah, yeah, it's... And so they make him a member of the gang, they give him like a a biker vest and send him off on a hog. (laughs) And he immediately (laughs) injures himself, (laughs) crashing into a road sign. That's like one of the bigger laughs that I had. <laughs> because it's all one continuous shot. Like he walks out of the bar, jumps on the bike, rides off into the distance, and you see little tiny Pee-wee slam into the sign. And this also had me thinking of, this is like bringing us back. When we did the beach party movies, I watched one from the 80s that was um, called Back to the Beach, where they were kind of doing a revival a uh, legacy sequel back before legacy sequels were a thing with um, Annette Funicello and what's the guy's name? I was Frankie Avalon, Frankie Avalon. And that movie has Pee Wee dancing on a table kind of like this, but he he's singing surfing bird instead of tequila, but he dances around as Pee Wee Herman in that one too, for like four minutes. And it's the best part of the movie. (laughs) <laughs> and then Pee-wee brought Frankie and Annette on his Christmas special. Yeah, so clearly there's a connection there. Right. But Pee-wee wakes up in the hospital after this collision with the sign, and one of many dream sequences where scary clowns are, like, dissecting his bike. So, clowns. Okay, Dan, clowns both in eight and a half on this one, in a dream. Oh, you're right, that's true. <laughs> But Pee-wee sees a news report on the TV in his hospital room, and I don't know why they're reporting on this, but it reveals that a child star in Hollywood is making a movie, and the movie features Pee-wee's bike that they've somehow come into the possession of. Also, this child star is Kevin's brother Wayne from The Wonder Years. Yeah, and I think this is before The Wonder Years, right? Yeah. I was like, oh, it's that guy. Wasn't he in something else, too? I'm trying to remember what I saw him in. Probably. The actor's name is Jason Hervey. Yeah. He's now like a wrestling, professional wrestling producer. Whoa. I know there was an episode of the cartoon show Justice League where Savage and Jason Hervey reunited and they played the superheroes Hawk and Dove, where it's like yin and yang. One is 
one is violent and one is peaceful, but it was the opposite of what you would expect. Fred Savage played the violent one and Jason Hervey played the peaceful one. Well, apparently Savage is an asshole. Did you see he got fired a couple of years ago from shouting at too many people on set? Oh, I think I did see that. Well, no great loss. As I said, Little Monsters is my least favorite movie. So. Uh, well, The Wonder Years is probably my favorite TV show ever, so definitely some some loss for me. But, yeah, <laughs> I, I like The Wonder Years. I watched most of it. I haven't seen the whole thing, but... I want to talk about it at some point, because I also watched it at the right moment in my life. Right, and you were watching it in, like, Netflix reruns, right? Yeah, so... We don't need to go too far down the Wonder Years rabbit hole, but it was a show that before the way that uh, syndication kind of changed a little bit, the way that like the, there were rights for stuff within the episode, um, they like had hundreds and hundreds of rock songs, like real rock songs, which is nowadays like very, very expensive to uh, reproduce on DVDs or anything like that. And so for years and years, you just couldn't see The Wonder Years because it was too expensive to print. The licensing was too high. And finally, the way they got around that was they replaced the originals with covers. Not all of them, but including the Joe Cocker theme song, which like is pretty central to the image of the show. And so a lot of people are kind of resentful of the fact of, of that. And I don't know if like high def versions have ever leaked. I, I did find a leak of uh, taped reruns of every episode with the the originals, but um, I don't know if there exists high def with the original songs. But yeah, it's uh, I don't even remember what we were talking about. Oh yeah, watch <laughs> it on Netflix. So I saw it on Netflix with the wrong music is how I did see it first. Okay, well that's interesting. That's how I watched it too. But, you know, presumably some people watched it in the original run in, in the TV show who aren't necessarily too much older than we are. Not too much. I mean, it'd have to be a few years older than us, but not too much. Right. Because I think it was 89 it debuted. Mm -hmm. But Pee Wee knows where to go now. Somehow he gets from Texas to Hollywood. And he confronts this kid and takes the bike back which kicks off this madcap chase across the Warner Brothers lot where they're just smashing through set after set of all these different projects that are going on all at once. So it's like a beach party film, of course. I'm sure right. Paul Rubens wrote that in. Uh, he must have loved those because those have like a campy element to them. you know. Right. And there's a Godzilla movie that's getting made. What else? There's a Christmas movie. They so suddenly Santa is roped into all of this, and it's like every every set that they stop at, some piece and some person gets ripped out of their element and is getting dragged along now. So there's this growing crowd that's chasing after Pee Wee. Oh, also D D Snyder of Twisted Sister is recording a music video. Oh, that was a real rock star. I didn't. I didn't know who it was. And a couple cameos here of Pee Wee regulars. Miss Yvonne plays the head nun who's in this film with Jason Hervey. And then 
Oh, I remembered who what I saw Jason Hervey in, but recently, well, not that recently, but he's um, in Back to the Future. He's the younger brother of the mom when they go back to the fifties. Oh, okay. What's a rerun? Exactly. I think that's the guy. Wow. Okay. Back to the Future, another one I can pretty much play in my head. What do you mean? This is brand new. I've seen this one. <laughs> oh, honey, he's teasing you. No one has two televisions. <laughs> but also, one of the actors who's walking around the back lot, he's got like a suit of space armor on, and that's Jombie the Genie from Pee-wee's Playhouse. John Paragon. But... Pee-wee is just tearing through, and he manages to get away. He, like, Ferris Bueller jumps over a fence and is able to escape. But then he sees a pet shop that's on fire, and he runs in to rescue all the animals. And he's able to get all the stuff out the door just before succumbing to the smoke inhalation. And a gag here is that, like, he doesn't want to touch the snakes. Because this pet shop has got, like, every kind of animal you could think of. Including, like, a chimp. Justin Bieber might have shopped here. <laughs> and then he finally, yeah, clutches all the snakes in his fists and runs out screaming. By the way, I actually stood in the storefront, which was supposedly used as this pet shop when I was on the Warner Brothers lot, so... Mm. It, it wasn't recognizable, but that's what they told me it was. So we've kind of gotten through the chase through Hollywood. And I just want to say right now, I, this would have been a soft pick on movies about making movies month on its own. And also kind of a soft connection to eight and a half. So I don't begrudge you picking it, but I was, I was trying, I kept waiting for it to feel more like a stronger connective tissue. Oh, I, I disagree. It's not a lot of the runtime, but I feel it's pretty crucial because Pee-wee collapses outside the pet shop and he comes to and you're wondering, oh, are they going to like arrest him or something? Because all the people who have been chasing him catch up and they tell him, we want to make a movie about your story. And so then he's in with the Warner Brothers bigwigs and they say, we're going to buy your story rights and like i guess instead of giving him any money they just say okay here's your bike back and then the finale is everybody convenes at a drive-in so everybody's jumping into their cars and they head out to this big plane where the movie is gonna show peewee's big adventure the movie and at this grand gala premiere Everybody who he met in his travels is there. So it's kind of the idea from Eight and a Half, at least I think so, that, like, you carry everybody that you've met with you. You know, it's not realistic that everybody in your whole life would be in one place at the same time, but because you are there, they are there. I can see that. I can see what you're saying, too, how they kind of all tie in. All right, I'll, I'll take it back. I shouldn't... As I was saying that, I forgot that it ended with the, the drive-in of the movie about him. So that, that is kind of like a very strong punchline, a strong final scene on the movies about making movies month. And I, I can see where you're coming from on the eight and a half connection, for sure. Yeah, I mean, just the visuals uh, that it's all built to them convening out in this big open flat area 
for the movie event also at the climax and it's like a sort it's like a fantastical version of it too right so yeah everybody that Wee met is there it's like the bums from the train are sitting around a trash fire and the biker gang is there and even the convict is there because they brought the prison bus to the drive-in they like recaptured him but he still gets to come see the movie so to you it's very much a movie about making movies to me it is at least this final act and yeah it would have been a soft pick on its own but i feel like at least in this climax it works because they show the movie they start it up peewee is sitting there with Dottie. so they've reunited and it seems like peewee has maybe come round that he needs to have people in his life i i think he somebody tosses him like one of the things is he's talking to the convict and the convict says i'm a loner a rebel and so peewee gets kind of his words thrown in his face and as the story goes along you know he talks with simone the waitress he talks with various people like that's where meaning lies is is forming these connections with people not so much your bike and your props by the way Dottie looks a lot like florence Pugh. i thought wow yeah i can see that post oppenheimer i yeah i know who florence Pugh is now so he's he's at the premiere with Dottie, and the movie starts up and you see it's a very loose adaptation of the story it's been turned into like this spy action blockbuster where peewee is played by is it josh brolin who's the one who plays thanos the older one is james so this one's got to be james right Okay, so it's James, it's James Brolin, Thanos' father, yeah, is playing basically this James Bond character that they've turned Pee-wee into, P.W. Herman, and, like, the bike in the story is, like, a Q gadget mobile vehicle full of top-secret tech, and Dottie in the movie is played by supermodel Morgan Fairchild. And Pee-wee himself is in the movie in a cameo, and he's got his voice, like, 80 yard over with it. somebody else's deeper voice. <laughs> yeah. That was funny. That made me laugh. <laughs> Paging Mr. Herman. And he's very, like, awkward, like, staring into the camera. Like, he doesn't know <laughs> what to do in front of a camera. Which is kind of funny, because he's, you know, in real life, Paul Rubens is very much knows what to do. But the way that he does it is very, like attention grabbing and not stilted but like affected speaking of james brolin he was the voice of emperor zerg in i think it was james brolin the older one not the josh brolin the younger one in the lightyear movie oh wow did you see that one haven't seen that one yet i need to i think there's a couple pixars i gotta catch up on so they watch in as far as they see Pee-wee's cameo, and then he starts riding away on his bike, and Dottie says, well, where are you going? Don't you want to watch the rest of the movie? And he says, I don't have to watch it. I lived it. <laughs> and then they ride off together, and their silhouettes cross behind the drive through screen. And that's Pee-wee's Big Adventure from 1985, directorial debut of Tim Burton. 
So let's just spend a couple minutes here before we wrap talking comparison contrast. So Dan, what are what are your thoughts that I stuck these two movies together? Let me just make the case for the connection is almost how different they are. It's like they're the exact opposite spins of having an episodic adventure of a person kind of dealing with all sorts of like weird exaggerated character types it's like so in in the peewee's big adventure you know everything is kind of cartoon and i don't want to say surface level but like because he's playing it for for camp and for kitchen for cartoon energy and adventure like very much the opposite of what's going on in eight and a half eight and a half it's all like psychological and literary and symbols and all that stuff and it's like it's not that peewee is a badly made movie by any stretch like i think they're both great movies in their filmmaking in different ways but like it comes at it just from like the exact opposite mindset about why one would go see a movie basically it's like i guess what i'm saying is the tones are are pretty much polar opposites yeah, I think you're right. I don't actually disagree with any of that. For me, it's really like what made the connection in my head. Uh, probably the most lizard brain part is the music. Just this one light motif, very similar. But that just hearing that come on, it's like, wait a minute. And then that was about halfway through the movie. They played that music of eight and a half. And then I was seeing the connections of, okay, this is a guy who has difficulty connecting with women in a meaningful way, who's kind of lunging sidelong into dream sequence after dream sequence, and is just kind of processing life through like a bunch of little vignettes. Yeah, I think, I mean, to me, that's almost like a genre of film. I mean, not exactly all of those things, but I, I definitely see what you, I, I could see how you'd be watching this and you'd like find that thread and you'd tug that thread and you'd, you'd see it. And it, yeah, I mean, a climax is at like the making of a movie, you know, uh, one of them is a wacky chase through 45 different pastiches. And one of them is like a cerebral meta film, you know, but yeah. Yep. So definitely not, enough of a match to make say a violent ends pairing like we sometimes do and like i said i didn't even see the connection as much the second time as i did the first time but thanks for watching both no i, I really want there are two movies that like i really really wanted to see so i i do not at all begrudge watching both of them and you know i think one of the things that's great about movies in general this movies as an art form is the way that like everybody's working from the same basic set of cinematic techniques and you know in the world of spoken film like once you get past silence like that also kind of there there's only so many ways that one can tell a story and you know seeing all these connections between them i think that's a i think that's a uh, lovely thing about film is that it really is easy to see ideas trickle from one thing to another and whether it's intentional or coincidental or what, whatever, 
I don't know. I find it uh, appealing to to find echoes of something where you don't expect it. And so I am actually glad, even though I was scratching my chin a little bit as I was watching about why you paired these, I'm glad that you did see the connection. You shared it with us. I did dig up a quote from Burton on Fellini. And here's what Tim Burton had to say. He says, that's what I always loved about Fellini's films. You see the weird joy of the weird filmmaking family and the abstract craziness that goes along with it. And there's something about it that's quite beautiful. I like that. So, Dan, how about it? Are these films good? So, is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So... Do we want to do eight and a half and then Pee-wee? Yeah. So I guess I will answer is eight and a half good. And I will say that I feel like I'm going to have a much better sense of where I ultimately land on this movie after I see it a second time. And I would like to see it again sometime. I mean, we didn't really talk too much about the visual construction of this film, but it's just got some of the most breathtaking black and white cinematography that you'll see really clever uses of light like kind of drowning out the frame but then also like creating these interesting shapes and shadows and just cool designs of shots and like in a way that makes you just kind of want to rewind 15 seconds and see that shot again it's just like that good over and over again there's cool use of steam and smoke too there's like scenes in a sauna and that cloud fantasy at the start. I wondered how they didn't get the camera fogged up when they were in the steam room. wonder if there's like a special fog proof lens or maybe like there was a super thin transparent sheet or something. Yeah, they might they're... have had it in some kind of cage or something. Yeah, but that's a good question because that, that would or maybe it was like dry ice steam, which I don't think fogs. Although it did seem like real steam, so I don't know. So, like, I can even separate my emotional reaction to the film just as, like, a film qua film, like a, a piece of craft. I can see why this has been uh, a film that's gone down in legend and, like, really inspired a whole bunch of people because it really, not only does it, like, very much address the creative process in a way that directors are going to connect with if you're doing the thing that Fellini is doing, but just so many images and ideas that are, are really uh, just kind of overflowing. And it's like not a narratively dense film, but it's like a image dense film and uh, like visual concept and even psychological concept dense film in a way that uh, I can see people like teasing out for years and years, rewatch and rewatch and rewatch. And for me, I, I did love it, but I also found myself like from a story perspective, just cause it is kind of avant-garde and I don't even necessarily mind avant-garde, but just like there's a, it's a almost two and a half hour movie. And there's a, there's a stretch in there. I would say like from around 30 minutes to like an hour or so where it's just like 
it just feels like it's scene after scene without any vision of where this is headed over and over again of like him arguing with an actress or him arguing with a producer about what is the movie going to be? Tell us more. I don't know. And then like I'm evading it and then some random scene happens or something like that. And so I was like, just get to the fireworks factory, get to the spaceship. Oh, there's also a scene with a magician. So, oh, I did love that scene. That was a great scene. He's like a mind reader type guy. That's a a similarity to Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Okay, yeah, yeah. So one other last thing, and I've noticed this. This was the worst of them, but I've noticed it in other Fellini movies is horrible ADR, horrible dubbing, where like, even though I know that I'm not understanding the words they're saying, it's like out of sync. Did you notice this at all, Brian? Yes. So actually, our professor had something to say about this, which I should have brought up earlier. But yeah, like there are times when I noticed like a woman is eating chicken and like her lines are continuing, but she's eating. And so you can just really tell that it was all dubbed. But apparently that was the convention of Italian film, at least at the time, was that like they may not have even recorded dialogue at the time. They just dubbed everything. So, like, in the days of the Spaghetti Westerns, the actors would be from all different countries, and they just have them talk in whatever language they actually spoke, and then in post-production, they would dub it in whatever language it needed to be. That's just crazy. So that's, like, crazy to think about. Yeah. It's like you could write the movie after you film the movie. And I found that kind of distracting. Not movie ruining, but it definitely, like, I was like, what is going on here? But, um... So I'm I'm going to give this an exceptionally good right now. I think it has the possibility to be a masterpiece for me because it, it's just doing so much that and it's so interesting and a lot to unpack. The way that it's so inventive about depicting the creative process and kind of the way it all comes together. But that's also like very much intermingled with the psychological complexities of the director and like his romantic women troubles. Just really compelling and kind of only held back about the things I've already talked about. And just because the director character is kind of a prick the whole time, a womanizer who not, not someone I would want to spend a whole lot of time with. Yeah. I like at least slightly more sympathetic directors, but I think also that's debatable is how sympathetic do you find this guy? Because he is kind of going through it and you kind of understand that too. So I don't know. It's definitely one I want to sit on for a bit and, and uh, watch again at some point, but exceptionally good for me. That's a seven out of eight. What about you, Brian? Cool. I think if you're a cinephile and you love big, like meaningful, thoughtful films that have left their mark on history, you're probably going to be really into this one. And I'm almost there. Like on the one hand, I think this movie has a high opinion of itself and is like artsy, quote unquote. And on the one hand, if you are spending two and a half hours where the character is a director who doesn't know what to make a movie about, I think I would not blame you if you found that really infuriating. Like, if you have nothing to say, don't say anything. If you don't know what to make a movie about, don't make a movie. But... 
I actually like this one quite a bit. It has some captivating visuals and I think recursive films, which is what the professor called this type of movie, can be compelling. A movie about its own making. That's just kind of a weird, cool idea. And yeah, the dude is spinning his wheels, but he's also like reflecting on his life. Uh, something I was thinking of was at the start of Walk Hard, before it, you know, goes into all the flashbacks. Somebody says, Dewey Cox needs to think about his entire life before he plays. <laughs> and so I was thinking, Federico Fellini needs to think about his entire life before he directs. Oh, man, you sent me that quote, and I did not connect it to Walk Hard when you said that. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm not quite as high on it as you are, Dan, but it's definitely, to me, a very good movie. Six out of eight is where I land right now, and that might change with time. But I did see something special here. Now, what about Pee-wee's Big Adventure from 1985, Dan? So for me, this is right on the cusp between a six and a seven, uh, very good and an exceptionally good. For me, it's like almost in the same bucket as another Brian classic you picked a long time ago, which is the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, which is that I don't quite know how to rate it because like I really got a big kick out of it. But it, there, it's, it's also just kind of strange and has its own energy. And there's something slightly ephemeral about it. Like it's just kind of a cartoonish sugar rush you know, and so I don't quite know where to put it, but it is a terrific time. And I can really see like Burton kind of emerging as this, this guy with this kind of energetic vision of cinema that kind of pulls in bright pop art colors, like art deco energy sort of, but also like just has a strong sense of like how to visually tie a, a shot and a scene together. And I, I, I don't know, that's kind of a vague thing to say about a director that you could say it about literally any great director ever, but like, I don't know, there's something about um, young Burton here really uh, doing something special, but of course it's the, the Paul Rubin show, the Pee Wee Herman show. And um, he just brings such a unique and, it's actually pretty fun to spend time with him. It's like you'd think he'd be annoying, but he's charming in spite of himself and in all these just really vivid adventures. Um, it, it it still feels like a little episodic and a little, I don't know if shallow is the right word, but just like it, uh, it kind of comes and goes in a rush, which, yeah, it has an appeal. Shallow, shallow. Oh, the song that we listened to last time, yeah. So I'm going to land on a very good for now with the potential to, again, edge that up into a seven as I revisit it and, and, and sit with it for a while. But let's go with uh, a very good. What about you, Brian? Nice. So we're kind of just changing places here because I'm going to give this one a seven out of eight and exceptionally good. I think it is like a perfect meeting of the minds between Burton and Rubens. It's definitely got their flavor and some episode a long time ago you said something about a reuben sandwich dan you compared something to a reuben sandwich and you said because you want strong flavors some of the time not all of the time well i tend to want strong flavors all of the time and 
I think this movie delivers that. It loses a little bit just because of how scattershot it is, but I do love all the little vignettes. It's got great music and just great bonkers production design. It was clear that they were like taking their friends along for a ride and just this was their, you know, debut on the world stage in in some regard and I think it's got a great energy. I recommend it. It's better than the sequel, Big Top Peewee. I don't know okay. if that'll get a dedicated episode at any point, but yeah, I vibe with it. Cool. Well, then I guess it's my turn to pick a movie. Indeed. What's up next? So let's see. I guess I only have two picks left. I felt like I had three, but I have two. I was going to pick Adaptation now. Is that too similar to Eight and a Half? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, but another episode I wanted to do is two of my favorite modern directors have both confronted the movie making process in different ways. And that is Wes Anderson and the Coen brothers. I'm going to do a Wes Anderson episode. I don't think we've talked Wes Anderson. So, Brian, I'm going to have you watch two movies again. We're going to do The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou or Zissou. I actually don't know how you say it because I haven't seen this one. Have you seen this one? Nope. The only Wes Anderson film I've seen, I've seen Moonrise Kingdom, as I think we've talked about it a little bit, and I saw a short that partnered with, it's got a T in the name, yeah. Darjeeling? Darjeeling Limited. And yeah, what's uh, the short where it's got Natalie Portman in it? Right. Yeah. Uh, what's that called? Uh, Hotel Chevalier, I think that short is called. Sounds right. And then... The second one is, so that one is about a guy making a documentary, a guy played by Bill Murray. Um, and then the second one I want you to watch is not about making a movie. It's about making a play, but I'm sneaking it in here because it's another Wes Anderson. And I think it actually is about making a movie. I think it, it's like a very self-reflective thing. So um, like a, a, the play is a proxy for a film here. And is that a brand new one too? That is. That is Asteroid City. The 2023 film. Awesome. I've been meaning to see that. I haven't yet. So I have seen Asteroid City and uh, I, I think it'll have a lot to discuss. And then I haven't seen Life Aquatic. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing that one. Great. Yeah, those are both going to be new to me. I've definitely wanted to see Asteroid City. And the what I've seen of the Undersea one, that's got some cool production design too. So, I mean, pretty much all of Anderson's do. You know what? Actually, I did see Grand Budapest Hotel also. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw that one too. Yep. Speaking of production design. Alrighty, Brian. Well, this was fun. It was. I hope you enjoyed it, listeners, and... Check in again next time as we continue talking movies about making movies. Bye, everyone. 